Our uh, foundational verse for this study is going to be throughout John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Uh, you all can be turning, if you will, to the book of Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 8 to 9 again. And I'll, I'll do a brief uh, review from what we looked at and, and talked about last week. Last week, mainly, the, the study was about looking at the a fiori, that much more phrase that the Apostle Paul uses often in the book of Romans and in some of his other writings. I, I believe Paul wrote Hebrews. He uses it there. Peter used it one time. Christ used it. But, but uh, it is a phrase often employed by the Apostle Paul that speaks of something much more than what actually precedes what, what, uh, what is being talked about. So we talked about that quite a bit in depth as we were looking at Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 11. We, we've known for years as a church that Christ died to save us. And we're going to look at that tonight when we look at Christ's part in our salvation as we move towards the part that the, the role that the Holy Spirit plays in our salvation, not only in giving uh, it to us, providing it to us, but also uh, assuring that we have it all the way to the end. So we looked at that, and then uh, we just stuck our foot into the door of this, of this Bible study tonight. We looked at Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Uh, we're going to look at that again. We'll look also at uh, John 20 and 31 and we're going to see what Christ did or his role in providing us salvation that we have. So we're not going to talk about what the Father's role was, although the Holy, uh, the Holy Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, had a role in our salvation and uh, just felt led to the Spirit, the best I can discern it, is to just highlight the work of Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit. Somebody want to read Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 really loud for everybody? For we are saved by grace through faith. Now, when we got to that verse last week, we went over to the book of Philippians chapter 2 and looked at a verse where it says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And we left here last week uh, quite happily decided that there's only one way to get salvation, and that is to put our trust in Christ, to repent of our sins, and by faith believe in the work that He has accomplished. No work that we could do uh, could give us salvation. And while I'm here saying that, no work that we do uh, could ever cause us to keep salvation. We trust in what Christ did at Calvary and what He's doing now, seated at the right hand of the Father in the heavenlies, according to chapter 2, of the book of Ephesians. Everybody that's saved, they've got to realize they're a sinner, uh, repent of their sin, by faith receive Christ as their Savior. They've got to go through the door. Jesus said, I am the door in John 10. There's only one name whereby we can be saved. And uh, Peter said that in a message that Luke recorded in Acts chapter 4, verse 12. There's none other name given among men under heaven whereby we must be saved. There's only one good shepherd that gives his life for the sheep. 
We find him again in John chapter 10. But tonight we're going to, we're going to do something before we continue with us or with this line of thought. Is our salvation... Do, well, let me ask this. Do y'all know that our salvation is in three tenses? Y'all remember, y'all remember doing verb conjugation in middle school? Anybody? Judy's shaking her head. Barely, Jim, is that it? I, I, I love that for some reason. I don't know, that just stands out in my ninth grade English class or eighth grade, whatever it was, but I just love learning the conjugation of, of verbs. It was fun for me. For whatever e- reason, it was easy. Not a lot of things were easier for me in school, but, uh, but I love that. But our salvation, you were shaking your head. What are the tenses of salvation? Well, she does sign language. It's past, present, and future. And how true that that is. I don't know about you all. I like it when I discover things in the Word of God through reading and studying. And that's exactly what the Word of God teaches. Now, this merits its own time. This study, if we stayed on this and uh, not do a deep, deep dive, but do a little dive, and we're going to do that, it would be worthy of a whole evening here looking at it. But salvation is past, present, and future, meaning that I have been saved, I am being saved, and I shall be saved. To say it in a different way, I have been saved or delivered from the penalty of sin when I was saved. I am being saved now from the power of sin. I will finally saved from the presence of sin. There's another way to say it. When we get saved, there is an initial or immediate work that is called sanctification. It is a setting apart uh, us for the master's youth. It's just that simple. We're taken out of the kingdom of darkness and we're placed into the kingdom of light. And then after we're saved, after that initial or immediate work of salvation or sanctification, there is a progressive work. It starts the day of our salvation and ends the day of our glorification, which is the third part of our salvation. Listen what I'm going to say. We're no less saved the first moment that we're saved at any time in our walk with the Lord or walk for the Lord. We're no more saved at the end of our journey than we are the day that we say yes to Christ and we experience that new birth. We become a partaker of the divine nature of God. But we grow in Christ's likeness through that period of time between our conversion to the time of our translation. Anybody in here know that you've grown since you first got saved? It manifests itself, does it not? And one of the wonderful things for me as a pastor that I get to do is to watch people grow. And my, my, my most blessed time, I think, as a pastor in doing that is when I watch people realize that, hey, I'm growing. When they realize it for their self, when they're willing to see it, able to see it, and then willing to embrace it, it just excites the life out of me. So uh, um, 
I, I like that. Those, all of those things are true. If you get to looking for something that you want to do sometime in a Bible study, do that. But uh, listen to what he said again in Ephesians. He said, for, for by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourself. It is the gift of God. Somebody, somebody read John chapter 20, verse 31 for our class tonight. Read it really loud. I think I could quote it, but, but uh, I teach our Sunday morning class, the discipleship class that, that we've got going downstairs. We turned all the scripture references that I have included in that little booklet that, that I put together a few years ago. And I told them doing, uh, you know, exercises with your finger is a good thing, so we're teaching our fingers to fight. So when somebody gets 20 and 31 of John, the gospel according to John, please read it. These things are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ and that believing you might have life, that is eternal life or everlasting life through his name. Do you know the word believe is one of the key words in the book of John, uh, the, the gospel according to John? Does anybody know how many times one of the cognate forms of it is written in there or used? Ninety-nine times. I've counted them. I've read them. It's pretty amazing, isn't it? And yet a lot of people think, well, I'll get saved by keeping the Ten Commandments. No, you won't. You can't keep them. So therefore, you can't be saved by them. And even if you could keep them, sir, ma'am, they were never intended to save anybody. They were intended to prove to us and to show us that we need a Savior. They were a schoolmaster pointing us to Christ. So let's look at Second uh, Timothy. I'm only going to give you that verse on the fact that we are saved. Uh, we were saved in the fast. Second Timothy Chapter 1, we're going to read verses 8 and 9. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. And when we're, when we're saved, while you are turning, we are justified. If you remember, and I didn't read it when we were in the book of Romans chapter 5, verse 1 says, being therefore justified by faith, we have peace with God. Justification has to do with my standing before God. It, it's unchangeable. It's unalterable. You remember I told you uh, when God sees us as justified, he sees us not only as if we had never sinned, but I like this, not only as if we had not sinned, but as if we had never been a sinner. And the reason being is when we get saved, we get in Christ, Christ gets into us. And when God sees us, he doesn't see us, he sees his son. If you agree with that, say amen. How wonderful that is. So, though I have sinned, and you have too, by the way, God sees us as if we had never been a sinner. Let me give you my definition of, of, uh, of justification again. It is a judicial act by God whereby, in light of what Christ did at Calvary, in dying for the sinner, God is able to declare just, not make, declare just, the, or declare righteous the believing sinner while still in a sinning state. It just doesn't get any better than that, without a doubt. Let me read, if you don't care, 2 Timothy 1, 8 and 9. Listen to what he said. 
He said, be not, and Paul was writing, as you know, to a young pastor by the name of Timothy. He said, be not therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God. And watch what he says in the beginning of verse 9. 9, who hath saved us and called us with an holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ before the world began. God had this plan of salvation whereby any man, woman, boy or girl on his way to hell could repent of their sin and by faith trust in the work Christ did at Calvary and be saved forever. Be saved forever. So we have a, a clear statement that God hath saved us. Look, let's uh, look in uh, 1 Thessalonians. That's right next door. Chapter 2 and uh, verse 13. Somebody volunteer to read that if you wouldn't care. Chapter 2, 1 Thessalonians, verse 13. And what I'm really wanting out of this passage is the last part of it, but it's all, it's all good. And remember now, our salvation was instantaneous. But once we're saved, we are to progress. Again, I want to tell you, I know I'm repeating, but uh, re repetition is a good way to teach. We are no less saved the first day we got saved than the last day that, uh, that we're here on planet Earth. So as we progress in Christ's likeness and in sanctification of the believer, friend, look, our salvation is good from beginning to the end. Who wants to read 1 Thessalonians 2 and 13. Read it loud so we all can hear. Notice the last phrase. Which effectively worketh in you, also in you that believe. Now, I don't know Greek cognitions or cognitives or how that they form their verb. And they got some strange things. I mean, like there's a... There's a perfect past participle. <laughs> but there is something that is written in a perfect tense that shows up in words in the King James Bible that end with E-T-H. Did you all know that? And what it means is that there was something happened, an action taken that resulted in something that continues from that point on. Isn't it amazing? So we'll get to some of that in 1 John chapter 3 when we try to identify who really is saved and who is not. Not that we're judging. That's not, our, that's not our role. But the Word of God does tell us we can look and kind of identify people whether or not they're saved or not, whether they believe that or not. So we'll look at that a little bit more. That was just kind of a, a teaser uh, for a head. But Continual thing. See, it's progressive. That's where the idea of progressive goes. It continues, right? The word can be applied in different ways, and we'll see that, but it goes along with the progression that is set forth here. The word uh, walketh that ends in ETH. It is, a, it is an event or an action that happened that has ongoing, permanent uh, results. It's pretty good. It's really absolutely phenomenal, actually. Now, who all was involved in my personal sanctification and your personal sanctification? In other words, are you doing it by yourself? Watch my little head. 
Who, who comes along with you to help? The Holy Spirit does, exactly. Of course, this word doesn't hurt either, but the Holy Spirit does. So, it, it, that man, that's a blessing. That's a blessing. And then finally, well, let's go to, let's, let's look at Titus chapter 2. Just a couple of pages over. We're in these books that start with a T, 1 Thessalonians, 1 2 Timothy, Titus chapter 3. And I'm going to get verses 12, 11, 12, and 13 because they go together. Actually, um, Paul teaches us here that there is a past work of grace, a present work of grace, and a future work of grace that goes along with our instantaneous sanctification or progressive sanctification and our complete sanctification, past, present, and future. Are you there? Say amen. He said, for the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared unto all men. He's talking about Christ when he manifested himself in the flesh, lived among man, died for man, was buried and came out for, out from among the dead, never to die again. So there is a past work of grace, but it, he, he doesn't say it stops, it continues. The word teaching, you see the, uh, the continuing aspect of teaching, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. So that goes right along with us, regardless we're one day old or, or 10 years old or 50 years old in the Lord. And look where it ends in verse 13, and I'll probably read the rest of the chapter just because it's good. Looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of a great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity, and purifying to himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. That's a pretty good deal, don't you think? So we have a past, present, and a future work. And then the future is, let's turn to, uh, let's turn to 1 John first, please, and look at chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. I like this. 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. And if you... If you are one that can memorize your scripture or you like the challenge, I'd challenge you to get chapter 3, verses 1, 2, and 3 down in your heart. They're, they're really good. They'll be a blessing to you. Without a doubt, they'll be a blessing to you. Somebody like to read verses 1 and 2 here for us? In that shouting ground right there? He said, Behold, what manner of love the Father bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God, present tense, the sons and daughters of God, ladies, okay? It, we're talking about his family, and, and 1 John is a very, very intimate epistle, an intimate letter that, that he wrote to his family, to his children. And he said, the world loveth us not because it loved him not. And he goes on to say, beloved, now are we the sons of God. It does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when we see him, we shall be like him. For well, we shall see him as he is. To pick up a verse over in the book of Philippians 3.20, I believe it is, he said that who shall change our vile body that it may be fashioned like and unto his glorious body. I don't know about y'all, but I'm looking forward to that day. Now, let me add a caveat to the latter part of verse 2. And I am not trying to add to the word of God, but I think of this, I've thought this for years. I mean, most of my time in the ministry. Not only will we see him as he is, but I like thinking he shall see me as I am. 
Now, that goes along with the context of this because verse 3 goes on to say, And every man that hath this hope of the coming of Christ, that epiphany, that uh, uh, appearing of Christ that we read about in Titus 3, or, yeah, no, 2, 11, 12, and 13, that glorious appearing of a great God and Savior, it says here, he says, and every man that hath this hope, his return, and us being made like him, purifieth himself even as he, meaning Christ, is. We ought to work on becoming and being more Christ-like every day than we were to the day before. Isn't that amazing? Doug, do you remember when Papa used to do inventory in his store? I'll never forget that. Now, Papa was, he liked things clean. Do you hear me? I've seen him take silverware from home and eat with it when he went out. And uh, no joke, he just liked things clean, and there's nothing wrong with that. And boy, I tell you what, he'd cut meat in a white shirt and a white, white, you know, butcher's apron. If he gets something on the shirt, he'd go change it. Poor old mama would have to wash it and iron it, and she worked in the store too. But buddy, I remember they, after doors would close at, at closing time, they would pick up every item of whatever was on their shelf. They had dusted and counted. They took inventory of everything so he could see where he's at. Y'all know we ought to do inventory personally. Paul said in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 13 and 5, I believe it is, that we ought to examine ourselves to see whether or not we be in the faith. It's a good time of the year to do it. I don't know how that got in there, but it did. Let's go to 1 Peter, just a couple of pages back. And look at verse, um, verse 5, I believe it is. Verse Peter. Well, yeah, I'm thinking I'm not right on that. It's 2 Peter 1 and 1 and 4. I'm sorry, give the wrong reference. Well, I like this verse too. 2 Peter 1 and, and 4. Isn't it amazing how over the years you or I in reading the Word of God, that it seems like we read every word when we do. We've got a program here, people encouraging people to read the Bible through. And we have all have trouble with begats and some of those strange names in the book of Second Chronicles. All right, let's just face it, we all have trouble with those. But there are times we can read something 10 or 100 times and not see what's there until God opens our eyes up to it. Now, we've got to get to that place to where he can open it up to us. I tell people the Word of God grows. In reality, we grow. The Word of God never changes. We just grow to the place where we can get what's in there. I'm going to read this one if it's okay. It said, Now, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these you might be, now look at this phrase here, partakers of the divine nature. You know what I want to say about that? Ooh, we. Man, that is amazing. When we're saved, when I'm saved, when you're saved, listen, God doesn't take away our old nature, our, our fallen nature, our nature that's Adamic. It comes from Adam and Eve in the garden, and it's the result of their sin. God doesn't do away with it. It doesn't die. We're to die to it, Romans chapter 6 says. But you know what he does? He gives us part of his divine nature. Now listen to this. You know what that's saying? In essence, simply, God's living in us. 
Isn't that amazing? God gave part of his divine nature to us when we were born again. So with that in mind, let's see what Christ did in order to save us. Now, I'm deviating a little bit from where I thought I would go. But I want us to stop in chapter 10 of the book of Hebrews. And there, there's a reason for that because there's a lot of, there are a lot of great things that Hebrews tells us about what we are in Christ and what Christ did to save us. And you'll find, if you read the handout that I give you, several references to the word eternal and the words eternal life in the book of Hebrews. And uh, I want to kind of highlight a couple of those, if, if, if I may, this evening. Now, let me tell you briefly what the book of Hebrews is about. The book of Hebrews is about better things. Better is one of the key words, if not the key word of the book of Hebrews. We find in this, in this book, we find that Jesus is a, better prophet than the Old Testament prophets. He's, a, he's, a, he's greater than the angels or better than the angels. He's, he's better than Moses. He's better than Aaron. He's got a better priesthood. He offered a better blood. He offered a better sacrifice. He, he offers better promises. We've got a better covenant by him and because of him. It's a great thing. And uh, because of who and what he is and what he did, made in the order of, of Melchizedek's priesthood, a priesthood after an endless life. Listen to what he's uh, promised to give us, actually, uh, uh, what we have. Now, I've turned back to chapter 5. Keep your finger in chapter 10. Keep your finger there, please, and turn back to chapter 5. And I'm just going to read a couple of, of verses of Scripture. Now, when this chapter opens, it opens with a reference to the priesthood of Aaron, the Aaronic priesthood. Aaron was of the tribe of Levi. Um, uh, he had brothers by the name of um, Fiddlesticks. Can't think of them. But anyway, through Levi son of Jacob, came the priestly tribe. When God brought the children of Israel of Egypt, he intended that whole nation to be a nation of kings and priests. But because of their sin and because of their disobedience, God allowed the firstborn of every family to be redeemed. You can read this in chapter 13 of Exodus. And instead, he chose the tribe of Levi to be the tribe of the priesthood, the tribe out of which the priesthood would come. So he introduces us to Aaron and his priesthood. He said, maybe in verse 5 or 6, no man taketh this honor to himself, save he that is called of God as was Aaron. But look at what he goes on in 5 and following. So also Christ glorified not himself to be made in high priest, but he that said unto him, thou art my son this day, this day have I begotten thee. Now that's a quotation from Psalm 2 and that I have begotten thee phrase does not refer to his virgin birth it refers to his resurrection out from among the dead as he saith also in another place thou art a priest forever 
after the order of Melchizedek, who, when he had offered up prayers and supplication with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death and was heard in that he feared. He's talking about Christ praying. He's talking about Christ crying. He's talking about Christ lifting up his voice in the garden of Gethsemane. He was heard and delivered. Now let me give you all something to think about. I've not challenged you too much tonight. I believe with all of my heart, while Jesus was in the garden of Gethsemane, hours before Calvary, before his crucifixion, Satan did his best to kill him there. Believe that thought of my heart. Christ wasn't praying to be relieved from going to the cross. He said, for this uh, hour was I born, and for this cause came I into the world. He wasn't, he wasn't afraid of Calvary. He didn't like to drink the cup that had my sins and your sins in it. Could, couldn't imagine what a holy God experienced when he partook of my sins. Can you yours? Man, I can't, I can't go to the depths. I can't even hardly get any cream off the top of that. It's so deep. But I believe that with all of my heart. I believe the devil did his best to kill him in the garden. I believe that's one of the reasons Peter, James, and John couldn't stay awake either. It had to be something that Christ had to fight for himself, he and the Father. But it goes on to say, though, we're, though he were a son, yet he learned obedience through the things that, uh, that he suffered. And watch this, and being made perfect, talking about Christ, and is also providing us a perfect salvation, by the way, he became the author of, of what kind of salvation? Isn't that amazing? That is just glorious. He become the author of eternal salvation unto some of them that call on his name. That's not what it says, is it? On a count of three, you say it out loud, real big and loud, so people can hear it. One, two, three, all. Unto all that believe on his name. Now let's go to chapter 10. I'm going to have to hurry to get this in. I'm going to pick it up. Ah, Lord, you don't know where to pick it up. I'll just give a little brief opening of chapter 10. In this, he's talking about the beginning of this chapter, sacrifices, and how that under the Aaronic priesthood they had to be repeated, not only every year on the Day of Atonement, but every day. Every day, the children of Israel and in their stead or in their place, the priest would offer a lamb on the brazen altar in the morning and the evening. There was to be a continuous sacrifice there. On the new moons, they had certain sacrifices. On the feast days, there were certain sacrifices. They, they offered a lot of sacrifices. There, there were sacrifices for all kinds of different things. And Paul, whom I believe to be the writer of this, is again contrasting the Aaronic priesthood from the priesthood of Christ that was made after the order of Melchizedek. You see Aaron died. And then Eleazar, his son, who was the next high priest, died. And right on down, friend, to the day of Christ, men died. They had to be replaced. And all of their sacrifices that were according to the Word of God and the will of God couldn't do what one sacrifice of Christ did, and that is to purge us from our sins, and not only that, purge our conscience from our memory of our sins so we can serve God acceptably. That's what this book tells us. So I want to pick it up in verse 6, and I'll read kind of quickly to verse 10. 
He said, uh, in burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, thou hast had no pleasure. Now, that doesn't mean that God wasn't pleased when the children of Israel obeyed. What it meant was it did not satisfy his demand that his righteousness and his justice cried for a sacrifice that was complete enough to take care of what they demanded so he could forgive sinners like me and you. Then said I, this is the words of Jesus, I come in the volume of the book, of, thy, of, of the book, it is written of me to do thy will, O God. Now he said above, when he says sacrifices and offerings, thou and burnt offerings, for sin thou wouldest not, neither hadst pleasure therein, and are offer, which are offered by the law. Then said he, lo, I come and, uh, to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first covenant, that he may establish the second covenant. That's unspoken, but that's what, it, that's what it means. Now, hang on. By which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Christ. Say it with me. Once for all. Somebody ought to be happy about that. Me and you that have put our trust and faith in Christ... We have been sanctified or set apart from sin unto him forever. We're going on. And every priest, talking about the Aaronic priesthood now, standeth daily in ministering and offering oft time the same sacrifices, which can never permanently, is the unspoken word here, take away sin. What? When, when they offered sin, uh, uh, sacrifice for sin in the Old Testament, they shed the blood of an innocent animal. What does the Word of God call that? Atonement. What does the word atonement mean, anybody? It means a covering. Do y'all know, know what Noah and his three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, smeared on the inside and outside of the ark? It is, it's tar, it's pitch. In the Bible, it's called kafar. You know what it means? That pitch. They put atonement on the inside and outside of that ship. The same word for that pitch, that tar, that, that sealing, it's a good word, is it not, of that boat for that journey that it was going to make is the same word that atonement comes from. If y'all ain't getting it, I am. You know what I'm saying? Now, the atonement, though, here's all it did. It never expiated sin or got rid of it. It just simply covered it and rolled it forward to another year, another day of atonement, to another year, to another year, until another, until this man Jesus came and once into the world offered a sacrifice for sin, after which he sat down forever at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now, isn't that good stuff? Not because I'm teaching it. It's just good stuff. Now look, let's go on. But, don't you like that? On the other hand, in contrast, this man now, speaking of Jesus, made uh, whose priesthood is made after the order of Melchizedek, after he had offered how many sins? Or one, how many sacrifices? One sacrifice. What's the next word? Sins, plural, my sins, 
your sins and potentially, friend, the sins of the whole world. He sat down, forever sat down on the right hand of God from hence expecting to his enemies be made his footstool. And he goes on, for by one offering he hath perfected them for seven years, for 22 years. He perfected them forever that are sanctified, wherefore the Holy Ghost also is a witness unto us. Now, we'll pick that back up maybe next week. Maybe that'll be the verse that we jump off of. But I'm, I'm not done. I want to give you a couple other verses of Scripture that if I, if I can find them really, really quickly that I think will be a blessing to you. Amen. Help me, Lord, find them, really. There it is. Back up in chapter 5. Is that what I wanted? Yep. I think. No, I read those, didn't I? I did. Hold on. Let me find out these two scriptures. Ah, Lordy. You ever do that when you're reading, studying the Word of God? You know it's there, but can't see it because you see it? Well, let me get it. Let me get this. It's in chapter 9. I think this is, it is chapter 9. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Holy Spirit. Pick it up in verse 11, and we'll quit on this. He said in verse, in verse 11 of chapter 9, now, in the beginning of this, the writer set forth the contrast between the earthly tabernacle and the heavenly. And he's still doing some comparison between the Aaronic priesthood and the priesthood of Christ made after the order of Melchizedek. And he starts here. He starts here after he said in verse 10, which stood only in meats and drinks and divers washings or multiple or different washings and carnal ordinance or fleshly ordinance imposed on them until the time of reformation. Okay, you can go back up and read that and I'll close on this. But Christ being come and high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of bulls or of goats and calves, but by his own blood. Look at the emphasis again. He entered once in the holy place, having obtained questionable redemption for us. Eternal. Y'all are getting this, aren't you? For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of an heifer and sprinkling the unclean sanctifieth the purifying of the flesh, it had its effects. I mean, that uh, water of, of uh, what is it? Water of separation? Water of what? That they mix that, uh, those ashes of the heifer with? Can't think of it right now. He said, how much more? See, there's that phrase. How much more, that's a fiori, shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God to purge our sin, our, our, your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And for this cause, he is the mediator of the new covenant that by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first testament they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. 
We've got an eternal Christ who through the assistance of the eternal Spirit offered Himself as an eternal sacrifice once and all with the promise of an eternal inheritance of whosoever believeth in Him. That's a pretty good deal. That's a pretty good deal. Any questions, comments? Understandable? Remember, I've told you before, I can confuse you when I'm not even trying. All righty, I'm glad you come. Glad folks tuned in. I hope it was a blessing. And by the way, Shania, I saw you, you know, writing pretty hard. And you can, you can listen to these on Sermon Audio and pick up. You can start it and stop it. Or if you need something from me, text me. I'll write it and then a text and send it to you. Uh, be happy, happy, happy to you. So, hey, don't forget again to look on, on uh, Wikipedia, that definition for aphoria or aphorsia, aphorsia. Look at it. Man, that's just a great definition. Any other thing, anybody? See you tomorrow.